Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start much needed conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In the last few months, I've been keen to go back to Vent's roots and help guests in the two main local communities my platform serves, which is my own North East London community and the Huddersfield community because that is where my football team is. I asked my mate and fellow town fan Ollie Fisher if he wanted to come onto the podcast. He instead recommended first that I speak to his partner Jordan Chassiak Pratt to come on. So that is who my special guest is for today's episode. But don't worry, Ollie. I'll definitely still get you on here and hopefully that pod will come out soon. Jordan works in finance in London after she moved to the capital after finishing her university degree. In this episode, we discuss the pressure Jordan faced in school to achieve, perfectionism and bullying she faced because of her academic ability. After being bullied for this as well as her weight, combined with her perfectionism, Jordan developed an eating disorder which took her a long time to recover from. When she went to university, she went through some very difficult relationship issues, which led to her feeling isolated and alone. Jordan had no mental health support at that time and was then diagnosed with anxiety. Midway through her degree, the COVID-19 pandemic hit and she was forced to do 50% of her degree online. We discussed the mental health challenges around that, the therapy she's accessed for the PTSD she still lives with today and how she's moved forward with her life. So this is how my check-in with Jordan Chassiak-Pratt went. Jordan, welcome to the Just Checking In Pod Power. Thank you so much for coming on. When your partner, a friend of mine, Ollie Fisher, recommended you to come on the pod instead of him, I was a bit upset, but I'm going to get to you eventually, Ollie. It's great to be talking to one of Huddersfield Town Twitter's wittiest Twitter accounts, maybe second to Sandra. That's a very that's a very niche in-joke for the non-Huddersfield listeners. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good. Very hot at the moment, which is obviously increasing every stress level I have. But yeah, it's good. Just moved to London a year ago, so settling in still, moving flat on Tuesday. Yeah, feeling good about life. Excellent. Well, you're moving from one kind of slightly posher part of North London but is more full of hipsters now I think Camden to another <laughs> posher part even more posher part of London so yeah we'll see how that goes for you yeah I'm really interested in talking about your journey pal and just everything that you've gone through and everything that you've now taken forward with your recovery so without further ado are you ready to start the show yes let's do it This is going to be a very straightforward podcast when we spoke off air, Jordan. So we're just going to talk about your mental health journey and then we have our quick fire mental health chat at the end. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life back up north, teenage years, and were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Jordan we meet here? Yes, yeah, so I'd say in my early life, I was a pretty active kid, carefree, super happy, Loved playing outside, playing football, like literally had no cares in the world. And that was like during primary school. Actually, during primary school, there was a few moments where I became like aware of like who I was. So 
for example, I remember very vividly in year four, but this is like when you're like, I don't know how old, we were like nine. And we had to weigh ourselves in math. And I was like, I don't know, like I had grown a bit quicker than the other kids. So I was naturally a bit taller, a bit heavier. A few of the kids were like, you know, making fun of me for it. And I was like really confused because this is the first time that I'd ever been aware that I was a bit different. And I wasn't even like overweight. I was just, you know, I was a growing kid looking back on it. But yeah, that was like the first ever time that I was aware of anyone taking the mick out of me, really. And then in year six, like I remember again, another thing to do with weight. So I was told by the nurse that came in, I don't know why they used to do this, but they used to weigh kids in year six to see if they were like normal weight, overweight. And she told me I was in the obese category and I was 11 years old. So, you know, kind of like influenced really easily at that age. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And like, again, like being told by an adult I was obese, I was like, what? Like, how can you even say that to me? And then from that point onwards, I was like really aware of how I looked and how much I weighed, which was ridiculous at that age, looking back on it. But at the time, you know, it was really, a really bad thing for me. Fast forward into high school. I've always been quite academic, but I was also quite shy. So I guess you could call me a nerd, but I never really classed myself as that at the time. And yeah, I worked really hard. I never, ever wanted to let anybody down. And that was like something from a very early age where I would realize I was quite gifted and like academic. And I wanted to take advantage of that. So I was always like kind of teased for it. And at the time it was like throwaway comments like, oh, you're a try hard, you're a show off, you're a teacher's pet. And at the time it's like, I tried to like shrug it all off. And you know, you might think those words don't really mean nothing at the time, but over time it got to the point where it was, it was happening all the time. Like every test we took, I was getting almost excluded for working hard and working towards my grades. And yeah, so in year nine, again, another thing to do with weight. I was going through puberty. I was very self-conscious about it. I was aware of this weight thing my whole life. And then suddenly it was all dropping off me. And like, at first I was getting like bullied for being fat or quote unquote fat as they thought I was. But then all this weight dropped off me. I became really self-conscious about it. And then in year 10, I really started like limiting how much I ate, which was again, to deal with the teasing, the bullying, It was a way to control it. It was one thing I could control within something I couldn't control. And this is where like I started having an eating disorder. Like I'd go to school and without like my parents knowing I threw away like my sandwiches. I'd eat like 10 grapes for lunch. It was really bad. And I was obsessively weighing myself. It really was a way to cope with it all. And because, as I said, like I was quite academic, I had like these expectations from teachers that I was just going to achieve every best possible grade. So like, I remember being set like to get 13 ish stars at GCSE, which, you know, that's unachievable for most. And especially for somebody that's really like working hard to not let anybody down. And like, every time I'd get a grade that was below that, like I'd feel so awful about it. To the point where I remember in chemistry, my chemistry teacher at parents' evening, she literally bollocked me in front of my parents for getting the B. They were sat there like, what do you mean? What, what, how's that a bad thing? Like, it's one test. Like, you know, she's got a B. It's like, well, that's two grades below what she's meant to be getting. Like, it's not good enough. You're not working hard enough. And then from that on onwards, I was like, what more could I possibly be doing? And yeah, I guess all of those things compounded to form my mindset and get me to where I am today. (laughs) I just want to go back to that perfectionist mindset that you had, Jordan. So obviously you talked about that teacher being very 
cruel in my in my opinion for just dropping two grades on one test it wasn't even your GCSEs wasn't even something that sounded very important to be honest so was that perfectionist pressure internalized or did it increase because of the external pressure that teachers face on you or was it a bit of both to be honest it was definitely a bit of both so like I said I'd always been a hard worker and being top of the class for most of my life I set myself really really high standards and if I fell below that I'd feel so guilty and for anybody else who hasn't been through that it's not just a perfectionist thing where you know you go to an interview you go, oh, I'm a perfectionist you know you know that's one of my flaws like this is like life-changingly torturous like it's waking up every day and trying to think of every way that you can make yourself the best person possible and not wanting to drop below those standards it almost feels like that you've got a heavy weight on you at all times because if you're not achieving the absolute perfection that you think you can in every aspect of life I, like you feel like you're letting people down talking about it, it it makes it sound really stupid but for me it was very real and that really lasted a long time and also like this was compounded by teachers at the time and they probably thought most kids work well being told to achieve a target but for me I already had those targets above and beyond what any teacher probably would have expected of me but for them to also then say oh yeah you have to get these things like otherwise you know to me it was like especially after the chemistry teacher situation it was like wow it really does matter if I get below what they think I will and in the end I got two A stars and 11 A's and wow. I actually cried on GCSE results day when I opened up my mouth <laughs> My wait, wait, grade. cry happiness or cry sad that you didn't yeah, get 13 A I, stars? I was, I was disappointed with myself, which really does say it all. Wow. See, on the outside, if I'd walked past you and if I'd been in your year, I'd be gone, she got 13 A's, what's she complaining about? <laughs> She's, she smashed it. Like I'd be like one of those kids. But like obviously you had such internal pressure to achieve. And I just want to kind of think about trying to put myself in the teacher's shoes. Did they think, on the one hand, you were perhaps more resilient or more capable of hearing that criticism or do you think they were just ignorant of your own mental health that they thought oh well she can take this etc etc yeah I do think it definitely was ignorant I mean I'm not blaming the teachers at all but when they've got like classes full of kids that all operate differently and you can never possibly know like how each child functions and they always focus on the ones that are badly behaved or mm. whatever but they like it seems to be the kids that sit there quietly those are the ones that get forgotten about and they don't really get the chance to yeah. like get to know them or, or anything like that. So I do genuinely think it would really help if people in positions of power like that who are influencing kids really early on had some sort of education to try and understand how children's minds operate because honestly that it was so unhelpful for me and like it lasted a long time throughout college, throughout university from these stupid expectations from very early on. That, that's what I'd set myself for, through life, basically. Mm. I want to talk about the bullying, if we can, because I don't know if you know, Jordan, I was bullied for nine years in school. I was bullied from year three to year 11. So I went through it, you know, in, in different ways to you, but probably in similar ways to you as well. And I was bullied largely by boys. And obviously, stereotypically, boys can inflict verbal abuse very maliciously, but obviously physical abuse tends to be stereotypically how boys bully. But with teenage girls, we both know that they can probably psychologically be pretty nasty too. So what was it for you about the bullying that really affected you when you were bullied by these girls? And do you think 
we talk about it enough? And how do you think we stop teenage girls bullying each other? So I think it was definitely a bit of both. There was a few times where, for me, it was, I can't really remember specifically, like, what people were teasing me, bullying me when. But it was definitely like this, I think, almost, because I had expectations that were quite high. I tried to, like, brush everything off. And I definitely think the teasing, the bullying, the verbal abuse is definitely, for me, it was much worse than the physical. Mm-hmm. So this one occasion, actually, which is by a group of boys, which I remember so vividly. I think I was in year 10 or year 11. And I was added into a group chat where there was some boys that all had girlfriends in our year. And like I knew them all. And like, you know, they added all of these girls into this chat. And they were basically ripping into them for like any sort of flaw that they perceived them to have. Not that these girls were flawed, but it was they, they were basically ripping into those girls to get to their own mates, which it was, it was awful, really. And I remember scrolling up through the chat, reading everything like explicitly. And what I saw about me was I was disgusting. I had a messed up face. I was too skinny. I was like a stick. I needed to eat more. I was starving myself to impress boys. And, you know, I was 16 and this was awful. Like, Mm. this is probably the only time where I told my parents, look, I've been added to this group chat and this awful stuff's been said about me. And it really affected me because at that point I was in like peak anorexia and I'm seeing people say that I'm starving myself to impress people. To me, that was one of the worst things that's ever been said about me. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. And I remember exactly who said it as well. And I'll, ne- I'll never, ever see those people the same, no matter mm. how much they grow, because that really did form my mindset from then onwards. And just on that, I mean, I joke a lot to people in a sort of morbid way that if I had been in school when there was not just, I mean, I only had Facebook when I was in school and it was kind of like the family computer and it was just the desktop <laughs> with, the lo- with the washing basket next to you. But I'm presuming you were in school and you had WhatsApp and you had Snapchat, Instagram, everything. And I don't even think I would have survived school. So when it comes to that side of social media, obviously you'll know better than me. How out of control is it when it comes to social media bullying now as it was opposed to when I was in school, which was 2005 to 2010, secondary school? Yeah, so I grew up basically as Instagram, Twitter, everything was really gaining traction. So I think I got Instagram when I was 12. So this was... 2012 and it was really hard to see like you follow people like you follow celebrities and Mm -hmm. everything and you you see like these amazing images of them they're all airbrushed and everything but you think that you can like get to that point being a normal teenage girl like you know you're 15 16 you're thinking you can look like some supermodel who's got a nutritionist who's on like a really intensive exercise plan has people to airbrush and edit their pictures and you think you can look like that even though you don't have any of that and also your pictures are just of you being normal being happy just being a girl just being a teenage kid yeah (laughs) oh exactly and like I honestly think the amount of monitoring that goes on it's definitely probably improved as like cases have been like called out by um, different sets of people but I remember there was this thing called ask.fm and that was terrible but it's people like asking anonymous questions, like saying, kill yourself and everything. Like that for me was, that was like peak awfulness of social media. <laughs> like, I don't even know how you monitor that, but that website was awful. And yeah, like it, it was stuff like that where these people, 
who were probably no different to you thinking that oh it's a bit of a wind up and like you know you can go out there and say awful stuff to these people as a bit of a joke but it really like it really does affect people and it did affect people I know of people that got really upset about it as well. I've interviewed several guests about eating disorders Jordan and, and this control aspect that you mentioned previously in the pod is a common theme that comes up so what did you need to let go of that control what helped you heal? I, I think as I grew up from school I went to college and it probably to about the age of 17 that was probably where I had like my peak eating disorder symptoms and I'd restrict everything I ate I'd count every calorie every gram of protein every gram of fat and that control really did help ease my anxiety that I felt within the rest of my life so I mentioned how I had this like really large perfectionism thing where I had to like be the best at everything and I got really anxious about it because obviously trying to wake up every day and be absolutely perfect is unachievable so every time I felt like I couldn't achieve it or something out of my control affected that then I would go to the eating disorder and like try and restrict what I ate there and basically to cut long story short I started going to the gym and I started exercising and then this was like five years ago so this is where you know the fitness influencer kind mm. of all became a bit popular and you know the the body image change where you had to go from being dead skinny to having curves and yeah. you know a big bum and yeah. like big arms and a six pack and you know so for me like I was basically following this trend and like as any teenage girl or teenage boy would be quite easily influenced by what they're seeing on social media I saw that as like a signal to oh well I can't actually achieve my perfect body unless I start eating so I started actually it kind of was a good thing in like <laughs> yeah it's an unhealthy mindset but it ended up being more healthy <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah so like I started eating a lot more I was eating a lot of things like protein bars chicken like loads of rice pasta and I'm not saying this happened straight away like there were times where I was really worried about what I was eating and like I went like probably a year without eating chocolate or something that sounds unachievable to me now I can't <laughs> believe I did it like I eat chocolate every day but at the time I was like scared that that was going to affect me and this transition from eating nothing at all to eating a lot more but then it was only like healthy things as people would call it that was when I like started gaining muscle and gaining weight which was the hardest thing to deal with because at the time I, I mean I had no idea that muscle weighed more than fat I thought I was just gaining gaining the pounds like I gained like 10 kilograms maybe from the time when I was like peak anorexic to like gradually getting healthier and healthier and yeah and what really did help me as well was talking to my mum and dad about it because that I mean my like you know my mum knew me and she's like she saw me shrink into this person that was like unrecognizable and like they really did help to try and introduce more foods back into my diet and yeah I think just leaning on them as well without really leaning on any of my friends because I was a bit embarrassed about it as well. How do you think we've got to this point where the pendulum swings from one thing so extremely to the other so like you said it used to be size zero culture and models like Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell were very prominent and still are to a certain degree 
and I'm not attacking them per se, but now it's swung to where Kim K and the Kardashian family obviously had a massive influence on young girls. And like you said, the curves and the slim thick ideal is is probably the best way to describe it. And I guess for men, obviously, you know, we came from the years of Bowie and Prince where men weren't too muscly to, you know, Love Island culture where now every man has got to have eight packs and big muscles and a lot of kids are on roids now because the men just want to get success with the opposite sex and they think that being muscly and we'll get that how do you think we've come here like why can't we find a happy medium do you think I think as the years go by and you can see you can see this through like the different decades back into like the 40s all the way up to like the 90s and noughties and now to where we are I think body image is treated like a fashion yeah. And I just think that's so problematic. Like, you can't easily change your body. Like, a lot to do with it. Yeah, like, you can go to the gym, you can eat more, you can eat less. But a lot is to do with genetics. And I think people forget that. Me, for example, like, you know, I I run 35 miles a week. You know, I go to the gym and play football. I don't really have, like, a really defined six-pack. And that's because, like, genetically, I'm just not meant to have one. And I'm a woman, like... We're meant to have it's hard. A certain, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're meant to have a, a certain body percentage for our bodily functions to work. I got to a point during my anorexia where I lost my period because I didn't have enough body fat. And you know, the, these things aren't healthy. So I think what we should focus on really is instead of focusing on the body image, focusing on how you feel, because at the end of the day, how you feel is more important than how you look. That's the mindset that I've got now. Let's fast forward to university now. You went through a very difficult relationship, which we, we're not going to go into the details of, but the, the consequences of it left you feeling very isolated and alone. So who's the Jordan we meet here? And were you able to get any access to professional support to help you with that? Yeah, so basically my relationship was quite toxic. I'm not going to go into details, but we weren't great for each other. And during that relationship, I was very isolated and probably I was unaware that I could actually talk to anybody about it and during university that meant that I had a few friends like I had a friendship group and everything but these people were really unaware of what we what I was going through because I was almost like I'm scared to talk about it and with that that meant that I didn't really talk to my parents about it either because I was in Nottingham and like you know I didn't want to worry them because I was at my dream university I was meant to having the time of my life and I just really wasn't. The resources that the university gave me for mental health were non-existent. Um, they had this uh, counselling scheme where you had to book on the day two weeks in advance and ring up at 9am to get an appointment. And obviously there was only about five appointments for 35,000 students. So, you know, I was never going to get one. I eventually basically got to a point where I had to tell my mum, oh, look, I'm so anxious that I feel sick every day. I don't want to get out of bed. And this really wasn't who I was at all. Like I was a very energized, outgoing person as a kid. And like, I've always been active and it was getting to the point where I had no energy to even like go to the gym. I hated going to lectures. And this meant that, you know, I was becoming isolated. I wasn't really having the university experience that I should have been. And I eventually just went to the doctors and was like, look, I feel awful all the time. I'm anxious. I'm stressed. I can't stop worrying about things, no matter how seemingly insignificant they are. And I got put on beta blockers, which I was told would like slow down my heart rate and, you know, make me feel less stressed. But they have the symptoms that 
they can like develop into depression and you know and I was like well it's totally worth the risk because at the moment I can't carry on how I'm feeling like I just can't keep going and then yeah just eventually did actually develop the symptoms of the beta blockers became even more depressed and yeah up until the point that COVID happened in March 2020 so literally just before my 20th birthday lockdown started and it was kind of even though obviously it was such a terrible time and like the whole country was like affected by this and for me it was probably the best thing that could have happened like this first eight weeks of lockdown being taken completely out of a, a situation I hated I hated living where I was in Nottingham it was an awful environment I never slept like feeling anxious and lonely all the time I was suddenly thrown into a situation where I could be with my family every single day I had the support system. My relationship ended just before lockdown. So like I didn't even have to get to see the person. So like it was really a bit of uh, sunshine and a really tough time. Before we talk about in depth the COVID-19, can you just tell me about when you were diagnosed with anxiety? So how did you feel? And just for the listeners, obviously I know the difference, but just tell the listeners why general anxiety is different to the more severe term or diagnosis which is generalized anxiety disorder which is GAD. It was 2019 so I was 19 years old it was during the summer of university and I went to the doctors at home and I was like look like I really really can't cope at the moment like there's nothing that I do that helps like the doctor was suggesting stuff like yoga and I was like look you don't think I've tried this (laughs) you know (laughs) but for me it was more the overwhelming anxious feeling that I woke up with every single day that meant that I couldn't function in a normal way and you can feel anxious like don't get me wrong normal people can feel anxious but for me this was like taking control over every other feeling that I felt and that was what was making it unlivable and I really needed that help. Let's talk about COVID-19 then so like you said it initially positively impacted you because that relationship had ended and you were not in that kind of toxic place that you were in in Nottingham but how did that new normal in air quotes also affect the isolation you were initially feeling prior to all of that? Obviously it was a time where everybody was only allowed to be with the people in their immediate household and although that was amazing at first and I was doing my degree and like everything was fine after those initial novelty months, as I call them, it really became apparent that this was going to be a lot longer than we all first thought. And for me, doing my degree, so I was in my second year when it started. So I did my second year exams online, which were really difficult to cope with because we'd never ever done an online exam before and we had no idea what the format would be. And it was all quite stressful because the lecturers assumed that you've got access to all these these resources so now we're going to make every exam super difficult stuff that you've probably never seen before and with little help as well and although I know I know that the lecturers were also coping with something they hadn't dealt with before for us as students who who were paying you know over nine well we are paying over nine thousand pounds a year for this top-notch teaching so you know it was like a zoom class we were getting like no help at all and this this went obviously this is 2020 so it like carried on we went back to nottingham for just two weeks we'd signed a new lease you know we were renting a new place i've moved in with some of my course mates 
We were there for two weeks until the next lockdown had been announced. We were wasting like £500 a month on rent and we weren't there. And our online teaching went all the way through third year. And for me, I just do a dissertation. And that's obviously one of the most stressful, hectic times for a student going to university. And like we had to basically do it all by ourselves. And we had little help. Like I remember having two 10 minute conversations with my like dissertation lead and you know like I basically did everything by myself and I really did lean on the help of my friends and what was good during that time is that there were online classes and presentations and stuff that you could go through by yourself but what really did get me through was my friendship group and the fact that we all had the same goal of achieving like a first or a two one we like you know we had to go out there and try and get our dream jobs during a time where we didn't know if there was even a job market anymore after university and luckily we all lent on each other and to the point where we all managed to get grad schemes after that even though the world was like upside down. I just want to quickly pick up on the fact of you being in that academic environment because you know previously you were in a very anti-intellectual space and you were picked on for being clever and bright and doing well so when you got to university despite having those supportive friendships did you still feel that academic pressure or did you feel like a very small fish in now a big pond? I did actually so the problem then was is that my friends all felt the same way and I guess that kind of it helped a little bit but it also exaggerated the need to be perfect because we were all wanting to achieve the same thing and that was very dangerous because then we were like almost comparing ourselves to Mm. each other and even though we've all come from different backgrounds like a lot of people that went to my university went to private schools (laughs) and they had top-notch education and I, I went to a normal state school in Huddersfield you know and we'd all ended up in the same place and for me that was a big achievement in itself. So I came from Huddersfield, I've gone to Russell Group University, and now I'm competing at the same level, these people that are privately educated. And like, for me, that almost eased it a little bit, knowing that I had already exceeded all expectations, but now I wanted to also meet the expectations that everybody else also had. As you came out of the final stages of the Omicron wave, you had just graduated and I presume had to do a very, very late graduation ceremony. So how did that feel? Did it feel like a part of your degree had been cheated out of? Well, I had my graduation in May this year. So. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so even so, later. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I remember at the time, so I graduated technically, I graduated in August, which is when the world had t- gone back to normal. Like I was moving to London, like, you know, it, the, the world was pretty normal all of my friends at different universities were having their graduation in person normal ceremonies and everything and my university seemed to be the only one that just didn't and for me like I remember finding out and I, I was so so upset because I'd gone through all of that pain all of like the mental pain and also the degree and knowing my journey so far and then getting knocked down yet again saying oh no you can't have your graduation this year you're gonna have to have it halfway through you've started your job like you know for me that was just it kind of ruined the whole experience and although the graduation was good it was fun like you know it was nice to get reunited with everyone I really did feel so cheated out of it and for me that was just the icing on the cake which just showed how bad the university was for us. Mm, Yeah, very bad cake. They didn't taste very nice, I imagine. (laughs) (laughs) 
I want to talk about moving forward now and after graduation. So you've obviously moved down to London to start your career in finance. However, you've also at the same time had to tackle the issues that you dealt with in university and the issues probably in childhood too. And this PTSD that you've developed from all of those issues that we discussed. So how have you gone about this and and what tools have you learned and what have you found helpful or not helpful? So for the PTSD that I got from the relationship I was in, like I was having nightmares and stuff, like it was like unmanageable. And this is when I was starting my job and it was nearly two years on and I was still having awful nightmares about these things. So luckily through my job, we have a scheme that allows us to get access to therapy. So I had CBT therapy and it was honestly a real eye opener because it was great to talk to somebody that didn't know my situation, didn't have any previous biases and could actually validate what I had been through and was validating it as a trauma rather than just a silly thing that I, you know, might live in the back of my mind, almost like rent free. (laughs) It was like literally validating it as a traumatic experience, talking through it and identifying what actually triggers that PTSD as well. So he gave me some really good techniques, like when I recognize a trigger to either note it down and become aware of it. And then the next time it happens, know why I'm feeling that way. Also trying to like normalize how I felt about it. So visiting locations that I'd been to before and trying to like decouple the relationship between going to that place and feeling awful and then trying to recreate new memories. And also alongside all of that, the key thing that I do is exercise. And if I didn't have exercise, I don't know how I function every day. For me, going out for a run, going to the gym, like literally taking your whole mindset out of your everyday life, just giving yourself an hour or two to just absolutely let go, put all your energy or stress or anxiety into something that can be created into something bigger and actually has good benefit on you and your body and your mind is really better than anything that I've tried. It's great that you found CBT really helpful. And I just want to open up a conversation that you might not have thought about before, because in order to tackle my PTSD and heal from it, I did two very life-changing rounds of a different therapy called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. Is that something you've looked into doing as well, Jordan? It's not really something that's been given to me as an option before, but it does actually sound really interesting. So for me, I think the CBT was really helpful because I could just talk through it and talk Mm -hmm. through it. But I've never really tried anything like that advanced before. Okay, I'll talk to you about it off air then. I'll give you you some links to see if you look. You have to be ready for it, but it's honestly (laughs) very life-changing if you do it. When you talked about the nightmares there, I used to suffer a lot with nightmares too. And one tool that a CBT therapist told me to do was when I woke up from one to stop myself going back into the nightmare to get out of bed and go into the other side of my bed. Is that like a kind of trick that you've been taught or different tools that you've kind of been using to to deal with nightmares? Yeah, so when I had nightmares, given that I'd woken up in the middle of the night or something, like I'd just get up, go get a glass of water, have a sit down. You can start reading a book or something, you know, just to take your mind completely off it and make yourself tired enough to then go to sleep again without overthinking it which did really help and then also validating the nightmares for me was a key thing just talking about them afterwards and then knowing that they're not actually real and everything that I'm making up in my head isn't going to happen it's just a really paranoid thing in my head 
I want to reflect now on your mental health journey, Jordan. So firstly, what is your relationship with food like now? Honestly, I'm at a place of food now where I never thought I would be. Like I always thought that I would be restricting myself and, you know, only eating things that are low fat and low calorie and, you know, stuff that isn't going to have a quote unquote bad impact on me. But now I'm training for a marathon. I can't possibly be functioning off 1,500 calories a day. Like I'm eating more than I've ever eaten. And I eat when I'm hungry rather than, you know, eating because I should be or because not eating because I'm hungry. To me, that now, that's so much better than, than where I was. And I think I'm going to continue being that way. I'll have a cake if I want some. I'll have, <laughs> you know, biscuits or whatever. For me, transforming that relationship with food to being fuel rather than an enemy or something that you should restrict was really important and I'm really glad that I'm where I am. You're now living in London you've got your self-described dream job so who's the Jordan we meet now? I'm very proud of myself and people don't say that about themselves enough but I think that's really important like acknowledging how you've got to where you are and even though I've been through quite a lot mentally and it's not that I even had like a bad upbringing I had an amazing family I had amazing friends and all of my struggles were through my mental traumas I am very proud of myself for where I am and I acknowledge that I still have some progress to go like I still get anxious don't get me wrong I still have bad days I still get stressed and I still worry about things that probably I shouldn't be worrying about but it's about like for me just talking it out being with Ollie, like he's such a good listener and I just say all of these silly worries out loud and he's there and he goes you know that's really rational you know why are you worrying about that you know just having somebody to say that's not worth worrying about and that that really does happen a lot (laughs) sometimes (laughs) so yeah it's great having that and also having a great support network at work my boss is great my colleagues are great and there's a really good like mental health scheme if I should ever need it and I did have therapy up until probably about March April time and I came off it and I'm feeling good about it I don't really need it anymore and if I have those bad days then I just acknowledge them as bad days you know and then I wake up the next day and start again and as a final question before we move on what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself and if you could go back and talk to that Jordan who was being bullied for a weight or being bullied for academic ability or the Jordan who was striving to be that perfect person at the cost of her own mental health or the Jordan who was at university stuck indoors feeling a bit isolated and alone and doing exams online what would you say to her knowing what you do now? I'd say it does get better it really does get better there were times where I thought you know I can't possibly go on to live another day through this and each day I got up and I did it anyway no matter how I felt about myself or you know what I was worrying about so for me just being resilient about it acknowledging how you feel at your worth and then taking that and trying to push through it no matter how awful it feels and reaching out to those people that care because I can guarantee that if you have a loving family loving friends they're always going to sit down and want to listen to what you are going through because they would much rather you do that than let you suffer in silence 
We've come to our final topic of conversation, Jordan, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and a chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health? If I was going to rate it on a scale of one to ten, I'd probably say eight. And that's just because of general stuff that goes on in everyday life, like transitioning to be an adult is absolutely (laughs) awful. And being 22 years old in London, that is a lot. And there's a lot of things on my doorstep, but also means that I can get quite stressed and quite tired. But generally, it's pretty okay. Excellent. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time? And you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical, but they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I'd probably say I was 14. Okay. And was it a gradual process or was it like a eureka moment? It was definitely a eureka moment. I was like, (laughs) what am I feeling? Is it actual sickness or is it in my head? It was trying to diagnose within my own brain what was wrong with me. And I, I knew that waking up every day and feeling stressed and anxious and sick and like there was a weight on my stomach wasn't normal. So I was I was glad to finally get that moment, but it took me a long time to then do anything about it. And also tell me about the first conversation you have with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What did you say? And did it feel like on the one hand a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, a very insignificant, small and normal thing to do? I think the first conversation was actually with my mum. And that's because obviously grow like my mum monitors me like a hawk she knew me inside out and when I was upset or down she didn't even have to look at me she knew there's something wrong with me we were just chatting and she's like what's wrong what are you feeling and I just explained it like I was probably in like year nine or year ten one of those ages that you know you shouldn't really have that much to worry about but I was worrying about a lot and I was just explaining all and getting it all off my chest she's like you know it's absolutely normal to feel this way and there is absolutely no reason you should be worrying about stuff but we know that you worry about these things because they're important to you and I think that was a really big moment for me knowing that there were people that would actually sit down and listen to me and especially being my mum like you know it's very important to know that I had them on side and didn't think it was a silly thing. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, it could be a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I used to get really, like, this is about a couple of years ago, but I I used to get really triggered by people saying they were on a diet, which is really a normal thing people think. But for me, it was like, why on earth would you restrict food? Because food is fuel, and I couldn't really understand that. I think other things that might trigger me are when I see things about like calorie counting. Yeah, the government schemes to introduce calories onto every menu. And I got really, really angry about that. I understand that it can be useful for the general population, but there is a small proportion of the population which it will really negatively impact. I just think it's a ridiculous scheme because there's young people going into these restaurants and seeing something that might have 800 calories in it. And they're thinking that's a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing at all. Something that has 800 calories in it just gives you a lot of energy. And for me, that really did upset me. And I think what the government should do instead is make it as an option. Have menus that do have calories on or have a website which has calories on and nutrition information 
but why are we displaying it for every single person to see? <laughs> what tools and methods then do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I'll start off with the ones that haven't worked. Um, <laughs> I tried yoga so many times. And let me tell you, for someone that's got such a restless brain and there's so many things going on in my head that I could never even like describe to anybody, that just is not helpful at all. Like I cannot get my brain into a space that will let me calm down <laughs> like that much and just breathe and forget about everything. Like I, I genuinely just need to be actually distracted. So with that, like I mentioned previously, exercise is a huge thing for me. And like I started off probably during COVID, just going for like massive walks and going for like small runs, like 5K and just, you know, seeing where it would take me and it would take my brain miles away. And I think about nothing else on those, those runs other than the actual run itself, which is really helpful. Other things that I try and do is, if I'm feeling really bad one day and like I acknowledge it's to do with either like hunger or tiredness, I would literally have like a mental health day. Again, this is something that my work luckily offers. Like, you know, this it. if you're feeling down or you're feeling ill and it's not because you're actually physically ill or you've got a cold, like you can take a mental health day. And I think that's, that, that's such a really helpful thing. And for people that don't have that, if you take like a day off in amongst the busy stresses of your life and you take that time to reset, read a book, go for a walk, do some baking, do anything that you enjoy and just treat yourself. I honestly think that does so much good. What is the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Um, I read one. That's oh, a strong start. I to, yeah, I, 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 need to, I need to Google the guy one second. Or if you don't if you don't have a book, maybe a <laughs> podcast or a TV show, whatever you feel that's been powerful. Um Okay, so this is gonna be really, really rogue and how I've like slagged off social media. <laughs> Go on then. All the time. <laughs> but <laughs> there are some positive people on social media. And one person that I actually think is really relatable is Stacey Solomon that sounds really really rogue because yeah she went on what X Factor <laughs> but for me she's such a normal human being she's one of these celebrities that is actually so normal so relatable talks about normal things like she was going through pregnancy and like talking about body image and the way that she perceives herself now like she sees herself as like a warrior rather than you know someone who's let herself go or anything because she's gone and had four children mm -hmm. and your body changes during pregnancy and she acknowledges that and she takes pictures of herself that they just make her look like a normal human being there's no editing there's there's no like supreme postures and you know posing and lighting and airbrushing like that she's just one of those people that really does talk about mental health and the normality of life and managing four kids and work and you know moving house like that for me she's really helpful and as a final question Jordan what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if most importantly they want to do it I, actually, this is something I'm so passionate about. <laughs> so for me, 
in schools education right is the most important thing and in school you learn about you know you do pshe or citizenship and you learn about drugs and you learn about the bad things in life why are we not teaching kids about mental health how to manage it how to cope with it how to recognize when you are having a bad mental health day i think that's so so important i think also is that mental health is obviously massively underfunded in the government. And if I had the power, and if I was the chancellor of this country, I would be allocating so much money to mental health services in the NHS. And I honestly think that therapy is so important and making that widely and available and accessible for everybody in all walks of life is so important because otherwise it's just these people who have money and who are richer than everyone else that can actually access therapy through private ways and I also think becoming more open as a society and trying to normalize mental health problems like people do on you know now these days you know on Twitter people saying um, my mate committed suicide or anything we should really be aware and talk to people I think before those tragedies happen actually opening ourselves up and allowing ourselves to talk to people as we want. And on that note, Jordan Chassiak Pratt, thank you so much for coming on Just Checking Podcast and talking to me about your mental health for the first time, pal. You're welcome. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Jordan for being my special guest on this episode's pod, for talking about her mental health for the first time and for checking in with me. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in to this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please do give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please do consider supporting us at Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys... It is always okay to vent.